This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you go into the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 304 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am extremely excited to welcome on the show Tamia Najipane. Now, Tamia is originally from Hungary and was a victim of human trafficking forced into the sex industry in Canada, was able to liberate herself and now is not only telling the story, but is also an advocate for victims of human trafficking. So an incredible conversation. We talk about how she started working with Deliver Fund and I had Nick McKinley on the show uh, about a year ago now. So this is an area that I was really struck when I spoke to Nick as far as when you are a first responder, how many of the men and women that you treat, that you deal with, that come into custody may actually be victims of sex trafficking or human trafficking. And we don't even realize that that's actually happening. So I think this is very pertinent, not only for us, the first responders, but also the rest of the community in identifying people that may be in trouble. You will hear during this discussion how there are opportunities for these men and women to be able to be rescued and they were not recognized. So a very, very powerful episode. I hope that everyone out there listens to the entire thing and really reframes the way they look at men and women when they're out in the community. So before we get to the interview, like I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. The five-star ratings and thank you. I'm seeing more and more coming in. They really do help make this podcast more visible. And as I mentioned, this is a free library. So all I want is to get everyone to share these episodes so they can get to the men and women that need to hear them. And this one with Tamir, as you can imagine, the more people on planet Earth are educated on human trafficking, the more of these young men and women that we can protect. So with that being said, I introduce to you Tamir Najpain. Enjoy. Well, 
Well, Tamir, I want to start by saying thank you so much for agreeing to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. It's absolutely my pleasure and I've been truly looking forward to it. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, I know Nick McKinley, I asked him a while ago, I, I said, do you know any people that have actually been trafficked? You know, I think that's a very powerful story. And his story of, of being an advocate is is incredible. But I think that your story today is really going to really paint a picture of of... I think, you know, what you went through, but also a lot of the myths that people think about trafficking that you just grabbed by some dude in a van and pulled in and that's it. But I think it's a lot more scary when you hear how vulnerable an average man or woman, you know, is uh, is to, to some of these traffickers. Yeah, absolutely. Which is um, what I like to actually talk about the most is, is how it really happens and what got me. Um, what led me to being trafficked there you're right there's a lot of myth and uh, that's why I was just really um, excited to do this interview because it is different than uh, what mainstream media would like to project and what usually ends up in mainstream media which is usually why I, I don't do mainstream media anymore brilliant well I'm honored that you you chose to come on here so thank you um, so where on planet earth are we finding you today Right now, I am in uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and uh, just about four days ago, I took over this tiny, cute little basement apartment, believe it or not, in a very famous area called High Park. In the middle of COVID, I was approached by a company to help them through the pandemic, so I needed a home office away from home and my screaming cats. So I am commuting here um, once a week and I conduct basically all of my calls for all of the work that I do um, with Deliver Fund with this organization and service providers around the world right now. So cute little basement. I feel like I'm a university student, you know. <laughs> eating craft dinner and being on the phone all day but that's where i'm at where are you at um i'm in ocala which is right in the middle of the state of florida so you stick a pin right in the middle of the little triangle and that's where we are so it's a, it's known for its horse farms very beautiful part of florida oh, that's so beautiful maybe one day when this craziness is over i have to come and visit oh absolutely or i'll be up in canada at some point too i'm hoping um, well, yes. And it's interesting, you said Hyde Park. I know, you know, a lot of the story takes place in Waterloo and there's there's a lot of uh, uh, London-themed areas of Toronto. Yeah, so it's actually called Hyde Park and most of my story, believe it or not, actually, so actually the healing part happened here. So after I was trafficked, I, I moved down here to Hyde Park and this is where the restaurant is uh, from the book called Medieval Times. So I actually lived here from the age of 21 to 30, 32, and um, I'm 42 now. So 10 years later, I returned, and uh, it's, it's a little bit of a full circle for sure. Brilliant. All right. Well, clearly you were not born in Toronto, so let's start at the very beginning. Where were you born and what was your family dynamic? What did your, your parents do? Yeah, it was an interesting one. I was born in Hungary, Budapest in uh, 1977, so it wasn't yesterday. Um, and um, I was born into communism. And uh, my um, 
my parents had an interesting background actually. So I'm probably third generation of generational trauma, if you will. So mom was um, coming from a, a, a white Caucasian Hungarian family and they very much, you know, lived in cities and served public. I have soldiers in my family. I had judges. I had crown attorneys or prosecutors in my family and people who worked for the Royal Hungarian Media. And my mom was a police officer or became one. And then my other side of the family is interesting is my father um, actually was um, an orphan and he came from a, a gypsy family. So uh, uh, he was uh, one out of nine children. But what was interesting about both of them is that they both grew up, they were both born in 1950, and they both grew up through very difficult times. So just five years after the Second World War ended, so there was really no food. Their parents, obviously, were going through so much trauma from or just recovering through the times when there's no psychiatrist. So let's talk about your feelings, you know. So then that the next thing happened was 1956, the revolution, um, when the Russians came and basically there was a big war and a lot of people died. And so my parents were six years old when that happened. Um, and so that just kind of carried them through their whole life. Mom developed a lot of um, like deep mental illness due to trauma and dad also did, but um, he ended up. Uh, using alcohol to kind of uh, sort that pain. So the the growing up in Hungary, Budapest in the 1970s was I already came into a family that inherited a lot of trauma, not being able to communicate with each other. Um, alcohol was the, the only solution, lots of domestic violence. Um, and they did literally the best they could to raise us. We were very poor and, you know, it was very normal. That was our normal. You look around anywhere and that's kind of was the normal. Um, again, we grew up very poor. So until I was seven years old, I, I grew up in a house where we had one bedroom and we slept four of us on one bed. Uh, there was no bathroom. So my mom was uh, bathing us in the kitchen sink and I would, um, I would have to line up on the outside of the house to use the toilet at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., minus 20, it doesn't matter. So that that was kind of my childhood in a nutshell. And uh, as, as communism kind of flourished and turned into um, socialism, mom was um, becoming more important in her job. So uh, we were able to kind of move out of the very poor area of Budapest and we were moved into like an apartment complex where basically we, we started being raised by, you know, society, neighbors, teachers, and our parents. But again, there was just a lot of trauma, domestic violence. We saw uh, suicide in Hungary is huge. So um, it's just a culture, unfortunately. So I wasn't even 10 years old until and. I wasn't even 10 years old and I, I um, experienced suicide on different levels um, around us. I saw a lady jumping out the window. I saw a lady jumping right in front of us in a streetcar. So 
Yeah, interesting childhood, interesting dynamics, um, but there was some good to it too. Um, and if you want to hear about the happy moments, happy to talk about that too. But definitely by the age of 12, I had enough trauma for, you know, 10 people <laughs> to carry. And I wasn't even aware of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I definitely want to get to the uh, the good side as well, because it's amazing how how much joy people can find amidst tragedy. But thinking back, and I'm not very good with my history, but Hungary was in, in the First World War, wasn't it? Austro, Austro-Hungarian War, they call that, I yeah. believe. And so then you went right into the Second World War. And then after that, you had the Russian invasion. So it's it's horrendous, not only the, the wars, but I, I was watching Ken Burns' Vietnam documentary. And I just finished it yesterday. And then it showed basically when everyone left... You know, the, the, the country was ravaged and then there was another, um, war. I think that involved the Russians and, and the Chinese as well. Um, and that's the thing we don't think about is, it's probably the same in the Middle East at the moment is once this war is done and, and those soldiers all leave, the men and women that live there now and the children are, you know, are in a very, very different place. But it sounds like poor Hungary was, you know, once it was finally probably starting to recover, it just got battered again. Yeah. It just really never ended. And, you're right. Like my mom and dad, they were six years old. And when the 56 revolution ended, when they came out of their hiding places, their bunkers, they walked through the streets and they walked by piles and piles of dead bodies. My mom lost her father. So I never met my grandfather who got shot by the rebels. Um, so it's just, you know, and then and then you live in communism where you are completely, you know, stripped away from your freedom. Uh, you're in fear all the time. You have to work for the government. You can't have your own thoughts. And then socialism. And then all of a sudden, uh, so my when my parents were about, I want to say, 30, you know, they lived their whole life being taught to become communist and you need to do the right thing and work for the government. They were 30, I was 15, or 35, I was 15. And now there's no more communism, no more socialism. Now we are all of a sudden, we love the West, and now we are Democrats. So everything that you were raised to believe in, you learn Russian, but now it's not cool anymore. Now you, just, you need to speak English. Uh, you would go to jail one day if you watched an American movie or had a dollar in your pocket. But literally the next day when the wall came down, now it's all good, and now Americans are awesome. I mean, how do you... How do you process that as an adult, let alone as a child? So at 15, or I was about 14 when the wall came down, we were, we were like, we were raised in a whole different society, right? You, you go to school, you get good grades, you go to middle school, the, the, uh, you get your second education, the government will pay for it. And everything is free. You just need to do the right thing and, you know, obey the laws and be a good communist and learn Russian. And your whole future is ahead of you and is all planned out for you. You can be whatever you want within the sectors, right? So I'm, I'm being raised to be a good little communist and do all the right things. And only when I'm 14 and I'm supposed to go into middle school, there's nothing there anymore. And I'm not qualified for anything because I speak Russian, not English. We don't have money. I can't learn computer. I can't even buy a computer. And now I'm left to my own devices, let alone, like, not only that my family um, 
fell apart completely. The society that was there to keep me together completely disappeared too. So my generation gone through a huge identity crisis, which is when a lot of Eastern European girls actually started to head out to the West, which is when all the huge sex trafficking, you know, started. Yeah, and that's the problem is that these these uh, predators prey on on the weak, on the victims, and and you know you see that so many, so often with with migrants from all over the place, whether it's sex work, whether it's just basically you know manual labor, slavery, which I know you touch on as well in the book, and I want to make sure we cover that. But yeah, I mean it's it's disgusting how these people are fleeing, and some of them, you know, don't even make the journey to where they're trying to get to, or they they get you know an even worse life where they move to. Right. Absolutely. It's just, yeah, evil is there to, you know, pick up any chance he gets. Yeah, exactly. Well, just before we move on, so tell me, tell me the good things amidst all that, you know, that gray oppression that, that you were raised in earlier. What were some of the golden moments? Well, I don't know why, but I was given some. I don't know if it's a gift or not, but I was given some talents and I really enjoyed kind of exploring them. So I love drawing. So I entered into all kinds of competitions in school. I I loved singing and uh, the school kind of recognized that I have a little bit of a voice. So they sent me to competitions, national and regional. And I loved I loved my community even at the age of, you know, two believe it or not. So I was always like very strong with justice and injustice and I always wanted to stand up for others. So I actually became like an advocate in my school for a million things. I got a million medals before I was even 10. As a result, I was able to go to the parliament and I was able to do so many things that like, you know, an average kid can't really say that they did. But I loved every moment of it. And the other thing that came with the fact that mom was a cop in the Eastern European bloc during the communism, that you can actually go and um, go and use all of the police uh, foundation um, summer camps in Hungary and anywhere else in Eastern Europe. So every summer I was gone. Soon as school was over, we were done, gone out of the house and didn't come home till August. And learned all kinds of stuff, how to live in a vile wilderness, how to start your own fire, you know, survival skills. And I mean, there's so many great things. So what I always say is, and what I said in the book too, when it was good, it was amazing. And when it was bad, it was really bad. And it just, it was hot and cold. Like one minute I was the happiest kid and everything was great. And next minute something really bad happened at home. And I just needed to find a way to cope with it. Yeah. Well, so you've laid a great foundation. So there you are. You, you're thriving in the educational side. You have all these other outlets with your, your singing, um, the summer camps. So, you know, again, smashing myth number one. You weren't, you know, on the streets living as as a you know being raised by wolves kind of thing you know you you had that that household so kind of lead us through how you got to the point where you needed to 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 find the money and ultimately looked at the uh the advert yeah so when i was 16 uh mom depression really started to come out and her other mental illness that nobody really detected yet 
So she was actually sent to a sanatorium and also she hurt her back really bad. So she went away to a sanatorium for, I think it was three to four weeks. And then she had to go to another sanatorium for her back for another two weeks. And then my brother, who was 18 at the time, he was called into the army because back in the day in Hungary, if you're 18, you're turning 18, you get called into an army and you have to serve a year and a half. And just so that you know what to do if there is a war again, right? So my brother was called. And here I am, all by myself, 16 years old. Mom is in the hospital. Zoli is in the army, my brother. And off you go. So I started kind of looking after myself as much as I could. And at the time, I didn't really realize that, you know, holy crap, like I'm alone. I don't have parents. Like I didn't really realize I had a boyfriend who was always with me, uh, who was actually very abusive verbally. But I didn't realize that it was bad. That was my normal. And I started working for a TV station. And so I was kind of happy as a pig, if you will. And then my brother came back from the army and mom came back from the hospital. And I just realized that like, A, I didn't pay a lot of bills and we are going really behind. But I don't want mom to worry too much because she just came out of the hospital. So anyways, for like another two years, we tried to like do our very best to pay the bills. And, but it really wasn't working out well. And then mom, thank God, met the love of her life. And by this time I was 18 and they wanted to actually move in with us, her and her new uh, boyfriend. She never brought any man to our house ever since dad left. So it was kind of new. And my brother and I sat, we sat them down and we said, no, look, we are going to be very responsible. We're going to take care of the house. We're going to take care of everything. If you guys want to move out, good on you, but we want to be independent. So after a lot of struggle and negotiation, mom and my stepdad decided that they're going to move into his house not far from ours. And we promised that we're going to take care of everything. Well, little did we know that what is that really means, right? So I'm 18. My brother is now 21. And... Honestly, we made a lot of money. I started making a lot of money. Zoli was making money. We were like swimming in dough, but we were young. And I'm still like, I still have all the trauma from my childhood. So even though we have money, we have a house to live in. We weren't homeless by all means. I didn't have the capacity that I thought I would to take care of everything. I didn't have financial training. I, you know. So, and so a lot of people said, you know, your mom should have never left you. I'm like, yeah, should have, could have, would have. It is what it is, right? We can blame all we want on anybody. At the end of the day, it is what it is. It happened. So by the time I was 19, 19 and a half, I lost all of my contracts from the TV station. And uh, we started drying out completely financially. And mom had another heart attack. And we just, we were really scared to tell her that we are falling behind on the bills because we were concerned for her health and we didn't want to worry her. And we didn't want her to want to move back with us and her husband. So there's a lot of factors, right? But truth is we were going broke. Eventually we had nothing to eat. And we really didn't want to tell mom because we didn't want her to really worry about us so 
I thought that I'm going to fix this. And while we were like really drying out financially, um, we got a notice that our house is going to be taken away in three months if we don't pay the bills. So that's when the panic set in. And uh, Zoli and I, my brother and I, were both started looking for jobs. And by then, we owed so much money. We had no idea how much we owed until we saw all the bills. And, um, and that's when it all started. We were so desperate to save our home and to make sure mom will never find out uh, and that she doesn't die of a heart attack. That, that's how I ended up finding the ad to come to Canada. Yeah, and just just to put you know put myself out there, I lost a home, and you know obviously I wasn't um, a young man and I wasn't in in Hungary, but I I know that fear because I it, I struggled to tell my wife that you know it, it was it was initiated from my previous divorce, so I was kind of behind and trying to fight to save it, but in the end didn't, and it was a horrible horrible feeling because you just you're drowning and those and those bills all add up and. There's, there's no way of, of recovering by that point. Oh. And yeah, that, that not wanting to tell someone, I completely relate. Obviously, it's a different context, but I, I totally understand, you know, the fear of, of telling someone what you think is going gonna, is gonna to ruin them. Oh, I'm so sorry you had to go through that too. Yeah, well, things are good now. Like, you know, like you're talking about your yeah. basement, you know, I mean, I, I'm in a good place now. But yeah, I, I, I want to be honest that, you know, I, I've lost one as well, so I can totally relate. Well, you know what, and that's, that's where the full circle is. I'm sitting in this cute little basement in High Park, but I have a home. I actually have a house, which is about an hour and away from here. And so I'm thinking to myself, 22 years later, after everything I've been through, I have two homes now. <laughs> Who would have thought, you know, so <laughs> how lucky I am, and I'm just so grateful. But, yeah, it was terrible. And so that's how, that's how, that's where the desperation came from. Yeah. So, and then the thing is, so, so you, you found a solution, which seemed like it would be a great option, which is to, um, answer an ad where they were looking for nannies in Canada. So, um, lead me through again. I'm not, I, I'm not wanting you to, to, to tell the whole book. I mean, obviously that's what the book's for, but just kind of overview of, of, of how you were made to believe that was the case. And then obviously, you know, the, the story of how that wasn't the case. Right. So the way I spelled it out in a book, the truth is in a book, an article, and it did say, uh, you know, nannies, Hungarian girls for Hungarian families, and general work wanted $1,500 a month, right? So I went to meet the agency, and you know what? She talked to me about being a nanny, she talked to me, me about being a general worker at Hungarian houses cleaning toilets, but she also talked about being a go-go dancer in a nightclub, right? And she said, these are all the jobs we have available, whichever you think you want to do, uh, but for us to get you into the country, we are going to have to get very creative with your visa. So, and that's how the whole conversation happened. I didn't know what visa is. I didn't know what immigration is. We didn't have immigration at the time in Hungary because no one was allowed in. I never even heard of it, right? So I don't understand what she's talking about. All I heard at, at the age of, you know, 20, with all my background and being super desperate, all I heard is that there's a job 
I can get $1,500 and I can go to Canada. And the last one was important because by this time, by the time I read this ad, and, and you know because you read my book, it wasn't just financial issues. Emotionally, I, I was going down in a very dark spiral. My boyfriend was very verbally abusive. I felt like a no one. I had no support. I had zero positive uh, relationships. There was no safe island around me by this time. My job wasn't there for me. I, I lost everything. Gradually, everything disappeared. So I didn't just needed the money and save our home. In a sense, I needed to save myself too. And and that is the truth. Right. Yeah. And I think that's that's probably why they were able to manipulate you the way, you know, we're going to hear in a minute. But um, so but this what I found fascinating is, you know, so that so right now you're walking through the door and it seems like an agency that matches you up with work overseas. And I when I was a young man, I actually worked for an agency that did the same thing on American summer camps. And that was completely legit. I didn't have to dance or anything, but, uh, um, you know, that, that those agencies exist all the time. So there was no reason for you to, to, you know, initially think that anything was wrong, but tell right. me, tell me about, you know, when, when you got there and how that was actually not what you were being promised at all. So basically, um, I got to Canada that, you know, there they paid for the takeout and, you know, the paperwork they gave me in English. I got to Canada and uh, when I got to the immigration, and this is a very long story, so I'm going to just cut through. When I got to the immigration, they basically interrogated me for six hours and they just really didn't like what they were hearing. So um, they turned me around, but I couldn't leave that night because there was no more flights. So they just handed me over to my agents, which ended up becoming the um, international trafficking ring. Um, and that's when everything started. I was taken to a motel uh, and at the motel, I was told that, you know, I messed up really bad and I owe them so much money and now there's no way for me to do babysitting. Now I have to make this money up as fast as possible because we need to pay off our debt because if we don't, then they're going to cut my brother's throat, my mom's throat, and then they're going to leave me last. So, and that's when they took me to a strip joint. And that was my first time being in a strip joint and doing anything like that. Yeah. So, so again, just to, to paint the pictures. So they basically created a fraudulent scenario that made you believe that you are now already thousands of dollars in debt to these people because they supposed visa fees and, and the, the new passport. And so right away, they've got this giant hook in you where you were trapped. I mean, you geographically, you were trapped. You were in another country. All these strangers are telling you that you owed them a huge amount of money. They were threatening your brother's life if it wasn't paid. Um, and then, so that is why that they basically took away all the other options. And the only one was to be able to make the money fast enough now was that you had to dance at the club. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, there's another side to it too, right? So when I'm sitting there and they're telling me this, and there is a 
I'm not going to give away the part that who this guy is who picked me up from the airport. When you 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 read the book, you'll you'll be stunned. Um, but let's just say that he's an authority figure from my past, and growing up in a communism, you don't question authorities, or I didn't, anyways. That's what, and that's my personality too. I obey authority. If I'm given an order, I follow it for the most part. That's how I grew up at home, right? So if somebody, an adult and a authority figure tells me that this is how it is, I don't even have the capacity to question it at this time of my life, right? So, so, you know, I've been told many times, like, well, why would you believe them that you owe them? And I'm like, oh, my goodness, where to start? I'm 20 years old. Like, remember when you were 20 and how naive you were? And on the top of it, like, me being brainwashed? I mean, the perfect combination. I was the perfect, perfect, uh, perfect victim mindset. Like, perfect, so vulnerable and not even funny. Yeah, and and you were alongside many many other women from Hungary. So clearly, it wasn't just you were naive and 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 stupid. No, that this was this has clearly worked on hundreds of women before you were ever even approached. True, exactly, and not just Hungarian, but Europe, Eastern European girls, absolutely. Yeah, so. I think one area I think that was very interesting about the book, and, and it's, it's a horrible topic, but that's the whole point. We need, we need to talk about it. And you talk about it very courageously in the book is when you start getting sexually abused, which is basically day one when you walk in there, how even then your mind is, is kind of questioning, is this even rape? Because again, you, you think you're just, uh, yeah, you know, is this person trying to be the boyfriend, as it were? So, so kind of lead me through your thought, your thoughts there, because I mean, it's horrible to read it as as a reader, because you're like, of course, this is rape, but you know, you're you're being told this fictional story, and they're slowly breaking you down, even sexually as well. Yeah, so that's the that's the crazy part that people just can't comprehend, right? Like. When we say in trainings that the victim doesn't even understand that she or he is being trafficked, this is what we mean by it, right? A, the word sounds like traffic. It does not match with the actual uh, when you're in it. It just doesn't match. It doesn't make any sense. But that's a whole other story. So the first night I was taken to the club, I was taken down to the office to sign paperwork, quoting code. And uh, the club owner and my Canadian, I guess, handler or manager, I didn't speak English. He didn't speak Hungarian. So you can imagine there wasn't a lot of conversation. And he basically got me completely, you know, undressed and he helped himself with my body. And the whole time he was doing it, all I was thinking is like, okay, so if he's kissing me, does that mean he's going to be my boyfriend? But does that mean I'm cheating on my boyfriend back home? And why is he doing to, this to me? And is this a rape? And I'm like, no, it can be a rape because I saw rape in movies and the girls are screaming. He's not like hurting me. So I don't understand what's going on. And at the end, I just, my conclusion was like, hmm, it's kind of like when you go to a gynecologist or a doctor, it's really uncomfortable for five minutes. But if you just stay still, it will be over before you know it. 
So that's what I, that's what was going through my head. But the last thing was that went through my head that this, I was 20, 21, turning, what, 20, turning 21. This guy was 43 at the time, right? So to me, at the time, he was old. And so all I could think of at the end is that if my mom finds this out, I'm dead. She'll kill me. That was my mindset. So I felt guilty. I felt ashamed. And I felt that this is all my fault. And I, I did not recognize that I was sexually assaulted or raped in a sense, which is crazy. So and moving forward through the next three months, this happened over and over, not just by him, but other people who just came to our motel, not just in the club. And, and over there too, when it happened, I would just, you know, lie down, close my eyes and just imagine that I'm going somewhere else. But, but never for one second did I thought of myself that I was a prostitute or that I was being pimped. I didn't even realize that that was happening to me. Not until three months later, until finally I was able to have a conversation with somebody after I realized that I can, they were asking me like, you do realize you are pimped out. And I'm like, I'm not pimped out. I know what pimps are. They stand on the street. I'm not pimped out and I'm not a prostitute. I didn't even know that I was a prostitute and that I was pimped out. I had no idea. Until someone told me. Yeah. Well, and I've had people on, you know, several guests on the show, men and women who were sexually abused when they were younger. And it's the same thing, that fear, you know, some of them were, were very young, some of them were in their teens, and they were completely frozen by fear. And all it would have taken was to actually pull a family member aside and tell them, you know, convince them. But that's easy for the outsider to say, oh, you should have just told someone. When you are terrified, especially when you're alone, either as a child in a family home or, you know, as you were in a foreign country, knowing absolutely no one, not even knowing the language to be able to communicate, that that completely reframes it, you know. And of course, now telling your story, it, it must be, you know, clear as day. But at the time when you're in it with with the upbringing that you had and, and the only kind of exposure to a lot of these was movies, um, I can completely see how the inability to process it um, must have been incredible. Yeah, it was. I was completely blocked to it. And the part that I missed out from my childhood, that I was also sexually assaulted before I was 12, two times. So those experiences were, that's when everything started. And I always say is that, especially women who end up in the sex um, work or sex trafficking world uh, not everyone but if we were molested before you know before you know 20 or 21 age of 21 we you know we endured this split in our brain that just changed us forever and so if i had a proper family if i had a father, if I knew what unconditional love was from a man, like from my father, if, if I had a stable home and a self-confidence, a solid self-confidence, if I had help, if I had my surrounding, you know, adults, if, I, if they knew 
And if I would have reached out, there's so many ifs, I would have never came to Canada. I would have never, like the minute I would have gone to that interview, I would have been healthy enough to recognize that this is a really bad idea, which is why there is a lot of people don't get trafficked. I have a stepdaughter who grew up in an amazing family. She's gorgeous and stunning. And when she was approached by a pimp, she taught him where to go. And she taught him up and he'll never, he never came back because they don't want strong, strong-minded, not vulnerable victims because they can't control them. My stepdaughter, you cannot control her and you don't want somebody like that in your stable, right? You can fully control me, which is why I was a perfect candidate. And many of us are. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I hear that a lot with, with the abuse and even with, with violence, even with the, the school shootings. Like these are all cowards. So when in whatever situation it is, they are approached, whether it's, you know, in a, in a, in a hallway where they're walking into the school or obviously in, in a family situation and someone's abusing them, when they have the strength to stand up, these people cower, you know, generally, you know, the, 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 the predator because they are, you know, weak, cowardly pieces of shit. Excuse my language. But that's the problem. That's the weak prey on the weak. And so I think the more people like you and, and Nick that, that get this, um, you know, problem out there, it, it knowledge is power and it will empower men and women that see the potential of this. And, and my audience, when I spoke to Nick the first time, um, it was kind of heart wrenching because I had a realization. Did I ever miss a trafficked victim in all my time as a, as a medic? You know, did I have any, any women or men who were being abused that, that I missed? You know, because he, some of the things that he told me about, I, I wouldn't have thought until he educated me. So I think, you know, what you're doing is incredible because you are empowering people and you are educating them. And hopefully some people will listen to, to your story here and obviously read your book and your other interviews and, and, and it will save lives and stop people from even walking into that office. I appreciate you saying that. That is the whole goal of everything that Nick and Deliver Fund is doing. And that's the whole goal of obviously my advocacy for the last 11 years. Because once you get into it, once you get lured in, I don't care if you were in it for a day or 10 minutes, it will shatter your life for the, for, for years. And it will take years to rebuild if you can rebuild. Yeah. Well, another area that I think is very, very important. It was funny because it's something that I talk a lot about on this podcast, but from a completely different perspective. Um, it, but the work, the work day. So tell me kind of, you know, what your week looked like when they were keeping you guys together and then working you in the clubs as far as how many hours a day you were working. Yeah. So typically we worked about 20, 21 hours a day. Um, we were dropped off at like 10 a.m. They picked us up at 6 a.m. Um, and we would drive about an hour back to the motel and they would feed us once a day. So I went down from 125 pounds to 89 pounds in two weeks, which is unbelievable. Somebody said to me at the presentation, that's not possible. And so I sat them down and I explained to them what my day was, 20 hours a day, dancing on a stage, on a pool, 
and doing all kinds of like pauses, trust me, it's like being in a gym 20 hours a day, plus you don't get fed, right? You get fed once a day, trust me, you will lose the pounds like crazy. Um, and not only that, like at once we get back to the motel, they would come in and they would, you know, collect the money, take all of your money with all kinds of excuses. And sometimes they would buy drugs from drug dealers, but instead of paying for their drugs, they would say, hey, if you want a blonde, go to room 50. If you want a brunette, go to room 51. So we were told that between six to, you know, or seven to like 10, we could get a knock on the door. So sometimes I got knocks on the door and people would just walk in and I would just have to do whatever they want me to do. And then, but the faster you let them go, the faster you can get some sleep. And uh, then you take a shower and scrub off all that crap from you as you can and uh, try to sleep. And everything starts all over again within two hours. And so after like a week of doing this, not sleeping, not eating, not knowing where you are, you basically become like a zombie. You have no nutrition. You're exhausted and you are being brainwashed every single day. They tell you how they're going to beat you. They tell you what's going to happen to you if you escape. They're telling you horror stories like one girl escaped from another group. And um, discretion advice here, by the way. Uh, one girl this uh, is, escaped from another group and they had to bring her back and they tied her up naked. And they washed her body with boiling oil for five minutes. And now, now she can't go to work, and now she's gonna owe them every single day five hundred dollars while she can, while she has to stay back. So stories like that, or how they're gonna beat us with the baseball bat. I mean, the list just goes on. And um, and after two weeks, you just stop questioning everything, and you just stop wanting to feel any kind of emotions, and you just shut down, and you become a zombie, and you go on autopilot, and you just do whatever you need to do to get through, and that's basically as long as you can handle that, and eventually, you know, you you start rebelling or not, you may start doing drugs or more drugs to handle it if you can. I didn't do any drugs. I just couldn't. I wasn't raised like that, but there are girls who did, so you just do what you got to do to get through. Yeah, well, the, the the big area that really resonated with me, because like I said, I talk about it a lot, is the sleep deprivation. So, you know, we know that they use sleep deprivation for torture, you know. So that's another thing when people question, well, why did you believe it? Well, after a few days of barely sleeping at all, you're not even thinking straight anymore anyway. And then you add, like you said, the one meal a day, which from what I read in the book was a pretty shitty meal anyway, <laughs> you know, it was a sandwich or whatever. Um, you know, of course, the, after a while, your, your, any will that you did have has basically been destroyed. Pretty much. Exactly. You don't exist anymore. And you start questioning your existence and you like, you don't even realize how fast or how you got here. You don't even realize how bad it is until you do. I remember after a couple of months, I was sitting in a window and I was looking outside and there was a gas station by our motel. And people were coming, families, getting out, getting ice cream. And I'm like, how on earth is that possible that they can just come and go as they want? But I can't even get out of my motel room 
and go get ice cream. Like, what happened? What's wrong with this? Something is so wrong here, right? So, yeah. And then, and then, you know, it's depending. Every individual is different how they live through this and how they decide. Do they decide to escape or not? Or everybody has different stories. I worked with over well over three hundred survivors now. Everybody have this different stories. What was their breaking point? How they got out? Or were they just rescued and they were just ready by then? It's so different for everyone. I, I, I've started debating like, okay, I either try to escape and they kill me and that's fine by me because I can't live like this anymore. Or I'll just drop that and die here because I can't move anymore. Those were the two things that I was thinking. So eventually I chose to escape. Yeah. Now, again, I'm not, I don't want to go too much into that because I think that's another great part of the story and everyone listening yeah. ne- needs to read it and hear it. Um, so what troubles me though, th- th- there's some really good things that came, you know, around that time when you started helping other traffickers. But what really troubles me, and I want to make sure we highlight this because I, you know, where the first responders, um, you know, are listening is t- the, the police officers, in i think it was it was the airport in hungary was that right the immigration police yeah yes if you if you're okay tell me about that because that needs to be spoken i know that person was never caught so at least let's give it some airplay well in my story they are the biggest monsters to be honest but the problem is that in every single survival story things get so much worse once they escape because they always end up walking into places where people don't believe in them or just further exploit them. So it is so important that when the survivors are ready to escape or being rescued, it should be by the right, you know, organizations, the right police officers, everybody who's properly trained. Otherwise, they're just going to end up being in, in further problems, deep, deep troubles like me. So when I went back to Hungary, Unfortunately, I ended up being interviewed by two Hungarian police officers who not only didn't believe me, but as soon as they heard that I was an exotic dancer in Canada, they wanted to they wanted to have their own private show. So just I just finished telling them what I lived through. I'm like, you know, 80 pounds soaking wet. I'm sick as a dog. I'm I have fever. I can barely talk. I'm about to collapse. I feel like I should be in a hospital, not here. And I felt like finally here is they're going to be, you know, helping me. I'll be rescued. You know, not what happened. Uh, They, uh, hmm. I don't want to go into details, but let's just say that the, the few hours that I spent in that room was probably worse than what I was put through in Canada by all clients that I met. So after that, um, things got so much worse for me, right? Because they didn't believe me, but then they did. But um, so, yeah, it's just, but again, I've never been the kind of person that if one cop does wrong me, that means all cops are bad. That's not how I work. If one nurse wronged me, that doesn't mean all nurses are bad. I don't have it out for anyone. It is what it is. It happened. And it is very unfortunate what those two men done. And they never got caught. But you know what? I believe in God. And I believe that I'm pretty sure they got what they deserved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just, and I want to highlight that because we, we've, 
I've talked about this on, on the podcast a lot, not just police, any profession, my profession, firefighters. I just had one, a guest recently where there was a firefighter that was one of the leaders of the KKK, you know, so that's a very, very bad firefighter, you know, from my profession, but the, the police over here are getting tarred with the same brush. Um, and, you know, most of them, I think, are incredible, but there are those toxic officers that we have that does destroy it for everyone else. And what they did with the trust that they had and, you know, wearing the badge that they wore to you after what you've been through was was disgusting. And, you know, I, I believe karma is normally a positive thing. But in this particular case, I hope they did get what they, you know, what was coming to them because it was it was horrendous and nauseating. And any 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 member of any first uh, responder professional listening would be disgusted with what they did yeah yeah thank you for saying that i appreciate that yeah well so another interesting element so you you're out the other side like i said people can read the book to see to see how that went um and now you start becoming um an advocate for um the police in toronto and what i thought was was very different and another angle that we don't really hear of you know, we, we hear of, of women getting trafficked. You know, Nick talked about some of the other things they use, getting them, you know, addicted to drugs, even kidnapping their children and threatening to kill their kids if they don't carry on, um, the, the, the work. But you, you talk about a group of men. So, so tell me about their story. Yeah. So around 2009, I started speaking out and sharing my story with law enforcement across Canada, with particularly the federal police, what's called the Royal Mounted Police, RCMP here in Canada, which is kind of like your FBI, if you will. And so I traveled the country with RCMP and shared my story. And at one of the conference, an officer came up to me and said, I hear you and I understand your story, but we have 13 men victims and they're Hungarian. They don't speak English. I was wondering if you can come and help us out. So I, and that's what I started doing. I actually ended up working on front lines as well, helping uh, with rescue operations. So of course I said, yes. So I went to visit the 13 men and they actually were trafficked by a Hungarian um, operation. There was, I think, uh, 13 accused at the end of it. And there was overall, 58 victims in, in like the past six years, but a lot of them couldn't be found. They tried, they got kicked out of Canada or whatever happened to them. And, but their gig was, is that they went to small villages and, and particularly one, it's called Papa in Hungary. And they recruited very vulnerable, um, um, poor, um, men, young and older. And they promised them, you know, the world. And they said, you know, come to Canada. We will offer you construction jobs. And all you have to do is work here for three, four months. And you can go home and buy your mom's house and buy, buy for, pay off your mom's houses or take care of your family for the rest of your life, so on and so forth. The problem was that the recruiters lived in, in, a, in a village as well. And all of their hitman lived in a village as well so they recruited young men and 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 older men who were literally their neighbors so they can watch their families day in day out while the victim was shipped out to canada and if the victim were wanted to leave he had nowhere to go he can't go home now because 
they find him and his family going to be harmed. It was a really bad setup for the victims. Um, and anyways, ended up becoming Canada's largest human trafficking case to date. It was so big that by the time we were going to go to court, they were going to have to build a, a new courthouse for $1.2 million. Every single media from Canada was at the sentencing. Uh, what really happened was that traffickers brought the victims over. They took their passport the minute they landed. They took them to different houses. They locked them in the basement. They fed them with food that you wouldn't even give your pig. I mean, green, moldy crap. Uh, some of them were specifically house uh, slaves to the to the kingpin. So if the coffee was too cold, he gets beaten with the cable, and the list goes on. Uh, they worked on constructions from 6 a.m. to, you know, till the sun went down. Then they were taken to minivans across the province or state, however you want to call it, in Ontario. And they were asked to steal checks, mail fraud. And so what happened was each victim, so the, the, the trafficker opened a bank account for each victim. He was the translator. So obviously the banks had no idea. They just thought this is his cousin, his brother, whatever. But he went to all different banks. So no one put the picture together. So now he has about 25 bank cards with the PIN number. And now he has thousands of dollars of corporate checks coming to him at the end of the day from all companies that he's fraudulently cashing. And now each of his victims are working in constructions and each victim can make up to four grand and he has their identities as well. So he made money from the construction. He never paid his victims. He made money from check and credit fraud. He made money from buying trucks and stuff based on like the, the house slaves credit and identity and sending them back to Hungary and ruining his credit completely and others as well. And on the top of it, he applied for every single individual welfare money. So each and every victim was eligible for up to, I think, $1,200 welfare. He made them go to the welfare office and say, hey, I'm diabetic. I, you know, because the more symptoms you have, the more money you get for special whatever needs. So the guy ended up clearing just within six months when we looked at the financials. Uh, he made about $1.6 million just in six months, but he was operating for over five years. God, that's awful. And you, you hit on a point I want to make sure that we cover as well, the passport. So the other layer of vulnerability, not only threatening family like they did with these men, is the immigration element too. So so they took all everyone's passports away. You're in this foreign country Every time, you know, that there's, there's any notion that one of you is starting to get some courage, they basically throw the, you're going to get caught by immigration and go in Canadian jail card at you. Absolutely. But so here's a story about the old man. He was 62 years old and he was the house slave. And his job was to clean the 10,000 square feet house every single day. And, but the, the slave owner's kids, 
were just such a punks and they just spit on him and beat him and tortured him and laughed at him. And every time he would finish vacuuming, the kids would start to come back and throw the, the Cheerios out of the cereal box, just start throwing it on the ground and say, hey, hey, if my father comes home and sees this mess, he's going to beat you again. Anyways, so that's how he lived. And he just, after two and a half years, he couldn't take it anymore. He worked 20 hours a day, not just in the house, not just cooking, cleaning, and doing stuff, but he had to build a fence outside. The neighbors thought he was the grandfather. He didn't speak English. He was given one cigarette a day. Um, every, so there was, this was the main slave's house, slave owner. So he had a basement. He had seven people in his basement. And they were only allowed out when they went to work, and then they were locked back in. Um, so what what the slave owner did specifically with this guy, so they only feed them once a day, but with crap, like disgusting food, right? And he would bring up this old man every night and have him sit at the table and watching them have a feast and just watch them. He wouldn't get a plate. He wouldn't, they wouldn't let him eat. And every time he would try to reach for a piece of something, they like, take your dirty slave hands away from our food. You're not here to eat. You're here to watch. And when we are done, you need to clean it up. So that's how he lived for two and a half years. And after two and a half years, he's like, I can't do this anymore. He saw an opportunity. There was a broken bike that was tied to a pose on his street. And he saw that every morning when he had to walk the kids down to the bottom of the street for the school box, bus. So he walked back and one day he's like, that's it. I'm getting on that bike. Listen, the bike didn't even have air in, in, the, in the wheels. It was just, or the tires, it was broken. He biked with that bike for two and a half hours down to the bottom of the mountain where they lived. He waved down a police officer. And a police officer checked him out. He didn't understand what he was saying, and he let him go. So his only option was now to go back as fast as possible before they found out that he was missing. And that was his first attempt to escape. And after that, he tried two more times, and he just stopped. And then eventually he was rescued by RCMP. Amazing. And this, so this is a Hungarian family in Canada? This was a Hungarian family in Canada. They're all gone now. And uh, this man specifically that I described, he was rescued. We took a very good care of him for about three or four years. And unfortunately, he had cancer and passed away two years ago, alone in Canada without family. Oh, my goodness. So th that's such an important picture to paint. I'm so glad you told that story because this is you know in a suburb where i'm sure people around that house were were thinking they were in an idyllic community and that kind of horrendous torture was going on in 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 their neighbor's house exactly and a lot of forced labor in america happens in the suburbs or in very distinguished communities and very elite areas you wouldn't know because you know People don't care anymore. Mind your own business, you know. That's the kind of attitude we have, especially now with COVID. Just stay away, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, right now, yeah, there's no eyes looking around at the moment. They're all behind no. closed doors. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, then I want to transition. So, so 
you know, you got out yourself. Now you're helping the police in Toronto. Obviously, you were able to to stay in Canada, which is phenomenal. What about your own journey? How how did you start to be able to rebuild mentally after what you went through? Honestly, um, I do really appreciate that question. And that is going to be my second book because it's so comprehensive. Um, the short version is that I reached every possible book, uh, material, self-help book. I turned to God. I turned to music, art, um, but I guess the only thing that I can say is that I just, I never give up on myself. I gone through some pretty dark times alone. I, I never really had help. I just, I just tried to get as many self-help books. I tried to keep myself as busy as possible. And, you know, each year pass by, something new comes up to heal. I mean, so much has happened in, you know, not just being trafficked, but after that, and even my childhood. So the last 20 years is nothing but just focusing on healing all the stuff that's keep coming up. I give you an example, just when I think I'm doing well, you know, and I think I'm in a relatively good place. Like, I lost my father five years ago and my mom. They passed on five months apart. And I was not in Hungary to see them getting old because of everything that happened, right? So it was really, really hard to go back and see them dying and realizing that I wasn't here. And, you know, we never had the time to kind of figure things out. So it was very, very difficult. And But then also with my dad, for example, he left when I was nine. So I never really had the chance to go back and rebuild that connection because I was trafficked and I had to stay in Canada for safety, right? So there's a million layers. So a week ago, I'm sitting in a chair. We are talking with my husband and we're going through Spotify and we're looking through music from our childhood, right? And this song pops up that I haven't heard in 35 years. I have a very distinguished memory about my dad. We didn't have a long time together, obviously, but the times that we had together, I cherished them the most. I miss him, I always did. But there was this thing when he took me on a bike ride and we went to a lake and given that he was a gypsy, he just knew his way around nature. So we would get some food and put it on the fire and we had a beautiful summer day but while we were on a bike he, the radio was playing and there was this song that he started singing along and he loved this song and I never heard that song since then and I'm sitting there looking at my Spotify and this song just pops up I started bawling my eyes out I couldn't breathe and I was out for days because it wasn't just that now I'm grieving my dad it brought up the whole other that I didn't have time for with him and, you know, it's painful and so on and so forth. So I allowed myself to go down for two days, couldn't get out of bed, cried my face off. Husband, my husband just let me do my thing. And then I was done, you know, cleaned my face off, fixed my crown and back to normal, you know. But so there really wasn't, 
there is really no way of fully healing. It's an ongoing process. We, I have a lot of really good days, months, weeks, and then things happen. Like, when was it? Six, seven months ago, I had to cross the border, go to the States to help out deliver a fund. And because of my story and how I crossed the border the first time and how I got interrogated and I was so scared the very first time, um, it just stays with me. So every time I cross any borders, I get a horrible anxiety, but it's part of my job. So here we go, we go. So I go through New Jersey and I don't have an American visa, but I'm not going to America to work. I'm 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 donating my time, so I'm basically a volunteer, but it doesn't matter. It gets pretty difficult or started to get pretty difficult to cross the border in the last few years or like a couple of years. Uh, so I'm going through New Jersey and I get pulled over and I get pulled over and I get pulled over to be interrogated. And honestly, I it took every bit out of me to keep it together. And I was like, I was in bits and pieces by the time they let me go. And of course, there was nothing wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not breaking the law. But, you know, two hours later, I had to, you know, go and help a victim. So, and, you know, off you go. Just, you you know, you don't have time to do this right now. So it's a, it's a working progress. That's all I have to say. So I think that's one of the misunderstandings of this kind of trauma is that you go through therapy and then you're quote unquote cured when obviously that trauma is going to stay with you regardless but hopefully we're able to kind of move it back to the the part of the mind where it's a memory rather than a constant trigger over and over again so what are some of the the tools that you've been able to use as far as therapy as far as outlets that that have helped you um when you have some of these flashbacks or uh, anxiety attacks? I think it was more of um, materials, books, and seminars that talks about the mindset and the, the how powerful your mind is and your brain and your thoughts. And if you can start controlling your emotions or thoughts, um, then that 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 became my coping mechanism. So I also what was really helpful is learning those materials. Um, I also became a um, a counselor. So I actually done 350 hours of training on, you know, trauma. So that was also very helpful for me to understand how my brain works, what trauma is, what happens when I'm traumatized. How does it come out? I also done training on grief counseling, which is very similar to uh, releasing trauma. So I think understanding what happened and understanding how the brain works and the chemical reaction and all that helped me the most. And so what I really understood at the end of the day is that the triggers will come like it or not. 10 years later, 20 years later, 30, 40 years later. And it's going to feel like just like it happened yesterday, right? So it's not a matter of um, whether you can put it behind and just kind of make it feel like it's just a dream now. But it's a matter of how do you handle it when it happens to you? So I guess that was like I created my own coping mechanism, which is when it comes, I need to let it out. And if it comes when I am not in a place where I able to let it out, 
I have to be able to control it, shove it aside for a minute. And then when I'm alone, I have to be able to kind of let it all out because it's really not good to keep it in. Um, But you know what? I'm not going to lie to you. I had times when I could not control it and I was in an environment where I really shouldn't have let it all out. But it is what it is. You know, I was doing a corporate event and we just got off the flight and I'm not even going to get into it. But I started crying so hard. This was just two years ago. I couldn't even see where I was going at the airport. Literally, I could not see where I was going. And I was with the company I was consulting with. And I I couldn't pull it together for like four or five hours. And I couldn't explain what happened. I could not explain it. And next day, I just, you know, <laughs> pretended like the crazy never happened. And, <laughs> and nobody said anything. <laughs> I never heard back from them. But... <laughs> <laughs> But it's, it's this, this, that other layer as well. So you get people like yourself. I had another guy on, um, Ishmael Bay, who was a boy soldier in Sierra Leone, you know, so had a huge amount of trauma. His parents were murdered. He was forced to fight for several years, you know, made to be addicted to drugs. Um, and he, you know, overcame that and is now, um, a UNICEF ambassador for, uh, you know, for boy soldiers. But, I think that's what people forget is that you've got that trauma, but then layered on, you've got everyday life. And I bizarrely myself had about three months ago, this inexplicable, I wouldn't even call it depression, just sadness where I would cry in the shower. I had no reason. I couldn't understand. I had no explanation other than some invisible um, pile of stress had just reached that final breaking point. And, you know, but I, again, I just kind of observed it. I'm like, all right, this is going on. This is really weird, but whatever. And, and allowed myself to, to go through that journey and then came out the other side. And I think that's an important thing that you said is sometimes you're not going to be in the right environment, but recognizing it and acknowledging it and definitely not having any shame about it is very, very important to then come out a little bit stronger once it's over. Bless your heart, first of all. I'm really sorry that you have those moments, too. And anybody who's done any frontline work or, you know, um, had trauma in their life, they understand what post-traumatic is. And yes, I think, and that's why I think it was important for me to understand what's happening to me. Because if I understand what's happening to me, then I can, you know, I can label it. Okay, this is what's happening right now. It's coming all out. So I just need to let it all out regardless. And I know better days will come. So I don't get scared and I don't lie down and say, oh, when is this going to end? I understand what's happening behind it. So that's why I chose to actually read psychology books and trauma related books and sign up to a million com- um seminars and um and classes so that I understand at least and at least I can be my own nurse, if you will. Yeah. Now, now another thing that I've noticed uh, is a very strong common denominator with Ishmael, with many of the men and women I've had on the show, is when they were through their own worst part and then they started realizing that they were able to help other people, not only was that very powerful for the people they were helping, but it was very powerful in their own self-healing. Was that something that you found too? Absolutely. So what I realized is the way I felt is that I'm going to give you a visual. So the minute I was trafficked every single day, 
the trafficker was reaching to my soul and my, my, my being and ripped out a piece of me and took it away. And every day they chipped away more and more of me until there was nothing left. And so, like, I, I couldn't go back to my family for Christmases. I couldn't open a bank account. I couldn't um, have my own house. I couldn't have my own job. And the list just goes on and on, right? My parents died. I couldn't be there. For, I mean, but every time when I was on frontline and I was able to do something for the survival that made it right for them, it also was like a piece of puzzle that was missing and I could put it back. So the very first case, when you remember in my book, it was a girl that I had to drive home seven hours away from where it happened to her and take her home after Christmas, two weeks after Christmas. She was taken before Christmas. She was held for almost two months and the police rescued her and I was able to take her home. And I was able to watch her walk through that door, be reunited with her family, which I never had the opportunity to do. And then they invited me in and her gifts from Christmas was still under the tree untouched. And I was able to see her reuniting with her family at Christmas. I never had the chance to do that. So, but when I walked out, I wasn't crying for me and say, oh, I never had a chance to do that. It was in a way, it was healing that piece of me that was missing. Yeah, that's it's beautiful. And, and I'm just about to interview a guy called Johan Hari, and he he's written two incredible books that you probably love, uh, Chasing the Scream and... Um, I am completely blanking on the second one. I'm reading it now. Um, it'll come to me in a second. Um, anyway, and he talks about lack of control and mental health. And it's funny because we, we had our conversation before and then I read this book and then now we're talking again. The, when you were trafficked, you had no control over your life whatsoever. And I think that the, one of the elements of that healing part when you're able to give back is now your control you're waking up every day and i am going to make someone's life better so i think that the the vulnerability that having no control makes uh the other side of the spectrum is how empowering it is when you realize that you are now part of the solution and you're protecting other men and women from these predators 100 percent and you know, there's so many things come out of the fact that you were controlled, like every aspect of your life was controlled. And then and then you remember what that felt like. And so as a service provider, those are the things you think about right away. And that's how you are able to give back. And that's why most of the sur sur survival-led service provider agencies are tend to be the most effective when they attempt to cause because they know right away how that survival feels. So like I was denied food, obviously I was starving all the time. So now I am very picky about my food. It has to be like a big deal. I'm super picky about my food. When we eat, how we eat, is it the right setting? Is it too loud in there? Is it too bright? Like it's just, unfortunately it is what it is. Thank God my husband, you know, is putting up with it for 10 years, but but comes with that, like when I walk into a situation, the first thing I will ask, are you hungry? And not only if you're hungry, I got a sandwich for you. So what would you like to eat? 
because I know they probably haven't ate whatever they wanted in months or years, right? And the minute you do that, you are able to not only offer them to say, hey, I know how you feel, trust me, without saying that, because you should, you shouldn't say that, but but at least you're able to like break down immediately a wall, and there's a million walls. So, and then it's a victory in a way for you. It's like, okay, another one is not gonna have to suffer for too much longer, you know? And another side of doing services for others, to me, I don't know if others feel that way, but it really is for me is about if I can help you today, that means maybe you don't have to suffer for another 12 years like I did. And and the truth is the survivors we ended up working with, you know, instead of taking them 12 years to write, to learn uh, English and, and speak English and get education, they got it in less than two years. Instead of waiting 12 years to get permanent status, they got it in three years um, going to school, so on and so forth. And those are the goals that I have that they could have a real life after this. There is such a thing. And you don't have to wait until you're 40 to feel like that you are worthy like me. It took me 20 years to get to where I am. So if I see a victim who's 20 years old, everything that I do today is about making sure that she doesn't have to wait till she's 40 to feel like that she's worthy and start her life. She can start her life at 25. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think like you said, with the food thing, I mean, as you mentioned in the book, something as small as that is is the first act of kindness that they've seen. And so I can imagine how if you're slowly able to build up the trust that, yeah, you can begin that healing process as soon as possible and get them on the path to not only recover, but then be resilient and, and really thrive the rest of their life. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, then, speaking of helping others, so tell me about um, how you started Tamir's Cause then. So, before Tamir's Cause, um, I had a charity called Walk With Me Canada Victim Services, and I ended up doing victim services, which we've been talking about a lot. So, I've worked with police agencies. We break down doors, rescued victims. Um, I did that for almost six years. I ended up working with a lot of police agencies. And so, we started a victim service, like a safe house specifically for victims of human trafficking. And we got really, really good at it. And we started to have like the biggest caseload in Canada at the time, which was great. Uh, sad, but great. Uh, great as in like we were able to get to the victims. It's terrible that we had to do that kind of a work, obviously. But what happened was we ran out of funds and nobody wanted to give us the money to be able to continue. And we were way before our, our time, way before human trafficking was a buzzword or people even knew what, what it was. So it was really hard to raise funds for it. So we closed and I was dead inside. It was just heartbreaking. I worked so hard on that um, and everything we've done. But anyways, it's life. It is what it is. But I wasn't ready to stop. So um, I actually started a for-profit company because my dream was that in the next 10 years, I will create sustainable revenue stream uh, um, models where we're going to make our own money. We're going to employ survivors, 
We're going to create schools where they can get certificates. We can offer them employment opportunities, training opportunities, um, and we are also offering educational packages. So we will continue doing all the work that we were doing except the emergency rescue operations. And instead of begging for funding, we will make our own money. And that's exactly what we ended up doing. We started with $3,000 a year to, I think last year, we were almost $300,000 company. And uh, yeah, so it's been extremely successful. We have a lot of different um, departments. Um, And uh, one of them, we started two years ago, uh, Timio's Market, which was a uh, soap and bat products, handmade, organic, locally sourced. Uh, survivors were making the products with professionals. Uh, and um, it was actually very successful. It was a two years pilot project. It was financially and in any other way successful. We had a trauma-informed employment program. We ended up employing up to nine survivors. We had our own production facility and showroom and created our own products. So it was great. And then we were scooped up by an investor. And uh, just this year, April, we were going to uh, roll our products out in Canada and North America in large retail stores. These were going to be like um, high-end spa products. So um, anyways, COVID happened. So everything is on hold right now. But uh, when COVID is back and when people are more comfortable spending money and not just on food, but like maybe even luxury items, we're going to roll that back out. So that's just one of the things. The other side of the company is a consulting agency and an educational firm. So Timia's Cause is partnering up with various large, um, you know, financial sectors, private sectors, the hospitality, hotels, and other organizations, tech companies. And what we do is we offer them consulting and education on human trafficking. We assist software companies, money laundering um, software companies how to create a great software and find human trafficking through the banking system. We also assist the United Nations um, and we also assist financial sectors on a global level. And just most recently, we asked to partner with the financial company who is offering um, bank accounts around the world for survivors of human trafficking. So we are going to take up on that. But what I'm very excited about is our partnership with an American organization called Deliver Fund. Deliver Fund is made out of former CIA agents. I believe you had them on your show, former CIA, NSA and uh, Marines uh, who came together in the United States and started an organization to hunt traffickers. So about two years ago or three years ago, I met the founder in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Nick McClamey. And we just happened to have a meeting that day to see if we can work together down the road. And that night, um, he asked me if I'm free by any chance because they had a victim and their victim advocate was out of town. So I ended up staying. I was supposed to fly out that day and I ended up staying to take care of the victim for five days with Deliver Fund. And that was that the rest is history. Um, We became 
family since then. So I also work with Deliver a Fund training law enforcement in the States and uh, helping the analytic team and um, a whole bunch of other stuff. So we are very busy, but our core mission is always every single mission we take up on is two things. One, can we make money on it and put it back into the cause? Or two, Will this help eradicate human trafficking and help us to put a go, make us go out of business in the next 10 years? And if the answer is yes to both, then we are, we are game, basically. That's amazing. Well, firstly, on Deliver Fund, yes, I had Nick McKinley and also Greg Jackson, who does a lot of work with them too. Um, and you know, what they're doing is incredible. And as you said, you know, the software side, the IT helping support law enforcement agencies in areas so they can actually you know make the arrests so such an incredible um, organization themselves but it's very interesting what you said about the fundraising because i just released an interview with a, a gentleman here where i live called ryan chamberlain and he talks about social business so you get the non-profits you know and they're always relying on donations to 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 keep the bills uh, excuse me to keep the doors open and then you have regular businesses. So uh, he uses Tom's shoes as an example. But getting a business where every time you buy, let's say, the soap, then you get the soap, this company makes a profit, but every single purchase, a dollar will go towards Tamea's cause or whatever it is. That I think that's the future of a lot of fundraising for these kind of organizations, that you should create your own business that supports you know, your cause, but also is making a profit so you're not relying on people that some years may be extremely generous and then sometimes like this the the, the money dries up and i think i think you're right uh, when i started researching what kind of company i want the frame social enterprise was keep coming up so my company is actually registered as timias cause inc social enterprise because that's what we do we make money and most of it over 80% of it goes right back into the cause. And I have not applied for a grant or raised funds in six years, not, not a dollar. Now, we did have some small sponsorships, but those sponsorships actually went towards directly to victim care. But for to raise funds, for me to operate, no, we paid for everything and we gave back as well. So that's one. And the other side that I wanted to tell you is that I think it's the it's psychological. So, and this is what I was suffering. Like I was wrestling with this when when walk with when I had to close walk with me because for six years here I am this strong service provider who survived everything and I'm supposed to be a role model to the next generation of survivors and show them that you can. While every single month I have to go to some rooms of people and literally cry and beg for money. And it wasn't healthy for me. It's not a healthy model, I don't think. And at the end of the day, I still felt like that I'm getting a handout and I have to beg for my, my victims, right? So it wasn't healthy for me personally. I didn't even feel good about myself. I did not feel good about going and asking for money. So when we actually closed Walk With Me, and the story how we closed is actually is in the book. I don't know if you remember, but we got denied by the last organization that we went to beg for money. 
And the lady, it was actually a large company and a VP was on her phone the whole time. And we just finishing telling her how the last victim was 12 years old, just from around the corner. And we don't have enough services to provide her. She didn't even look up from her phone until the end. And she said, yeah, I'm sorry, we don't have this kind of money right now. But you know what? On your way out, you can talk to the receptionist and you're welcome to use our printer anytime. Okay? Oh, my goodness. I I cry if I get frustrated or I punch the wall. And so I couldn't punch anything. I haven't punched anything in a long time, probably 18 years. But... um, but I was surrounded with very professional people, the mayor and so on and so forth. So I didn't want to punch anything or anyone, but I started crying. And the mayor looked at me and she goes, I cannot believe that just happened. And I said, I'm going to promise you, mayor, right now, that in 10 years, I will be a multimillionaire and I will never, ever ask for money ever again. And that was about six years ago. And that was the last time I asked for money. And I will never do it again. I am not a millionaire yet, but I still have about 40 years to get there. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have said the same thing, but I would have also punched the printer on my way out. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know what? Like, I can use your printer. So you want me to feed the printers to my victims? Yeah, exactly. Like, and that's what, is that's what the next generation means to you, that they can use the printer? Are you kidding me? It was a, such a slap in the face, not just to me, but to the entire victim generation, you know, and population. It's like, are you kidding me? Unbelievable. Yeah. But anyways, here we are. And, uh, you know, um, we closed a very successful year last year. And of course, COVID is not helping right now, but it's, it is what it is. We will get through and we will keep on going. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is going to go out, right? I think when, you know, we're starting to emerge from the other side. So I'm hoping that when people have kind of had some time on their own and really think about priorities that they will, you know, will be more wise with their spending too, and hopefully be more conscious about the companies that they use their dollars on. So if, for example, they're, they're buying products that are also supporting the fight against sex trafficking and supporting the victims of that, then why not buy that instead of, you know, the, the, the company you used to use that doesn't do anything with their money? Right. I mean, one of the things that they started to do here for in Canada for us, like police officers, they started to, they went to their accountants, like at the police station, and they said, our entire unit would like to redirect our money that we usually donate to whatever charity to walk with me. So next thing you know, we have 2,000 police officers donating us portion of their salaries, which was unbelievable. And so if, you know, if there is law enforcement out there who's listening and you're already, you know, donating some money, just please look in to see if you can, you know, donate to organizations such as the Deliver Fund, who basically is working for and with law enforcement for the last five years and trying to put the traffickers on silver platter. So there's a million kind of, I mean, I feel differently about those donations because it's not like you're not begging. It's like, hey, we are working together. We are on the same team. If you're already donating and you feel like that, you know, you want to shift or change, like maybe this is, and trust me, every dollar counts. Like, and, and they are so respectful with every single donation. I work on the team, so I know how, 
the money goes a long way and it does not go to like high-end salaries. It really is going to the people on the front lines. Yeah. Yeah. And I see that. There's a, there's a friend of mine, Ryan Parrott, who has um, Sons of the Flag, which helps on the mental health side, but, but specifically burns. So whether it's military veterans or first responders, they get the best care so that they don't just get yeah, the burn barely taken care of, but they actually get the plastic surgery so they can get as close to, you know, what they look like before um, and, you know, as mobile as possible as well. But obviously, that's a very expensive thing, too. But I think, you know, what you observed is is something that I hear so many of these men and women talk about. And the problem is Ryan and you and Nick are so passionate about what you do because you get it. You understand the why. You've seen the traffickers, I mean, the, 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 the victims of trafficking in front of you and Ryan's seen these burn injured men and women in front of him. So they know how hard they have to fight. And the problem is you go into a boardroom full of people that are so disconnected, many of whom just don't care. You're just, you're just a number, you know, what, which part of my budget you're going to try and take from today. So to be able to, turn that fire and that passion into a business where you generate your own funds i think is incredible and then letting the public say vote with your dollar this is a you know a, an organic um natural beauty line that when you buy the soap you're actually making a difference to the world too i think it's i honestly think that's the answer to so many non-profits and i'm really excited to see how this whole concept takes off I thank you so much for like understanding and appreciating the concept. I really, I really do appreciate that. That's half of the battle usually to make people understand what the concept behind social enterprise. So thank you. Thank you so much for validating that. No problem. Well, I, I think it's incredible. So, well, I want to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. Um, before I talk about other people's books, so let's talk about your book. So the book is called Out of the Shadows. Where can people find um, the audio book and the actual print version? Yeah, so you can get it on Amazon. I do understand that it's in some bookstores in the United States too, and it was in bookstores when the book came out. Um, not sure if it's there now. So your best bet would be Amazon for sure. And same with the audiobook. You can get it online. Just type it in out of the shadows by Timmy and Aggie audiobook and you'll you'll find it. Yeah, and I'd actually listen to the audiobook and you, the narrator that you chose was very good, I thought. Thank you so much. So then um the first closing question is then is there a book written by someone else that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. Yeah, it's a little out there, though. That's okay. Two <laughs> um, books that actually started me on my journey. Uh, one of them was, well, actually, there's several books. Um, you know what? I wish I remembered the very first one. Um, I don't know if I'm going to find it. It was a book that was released in 1957 or something. And, it, and uh, I had it with me for like years and years. And it's something with the mosaic of the mind but i can't i can't honestly tell you for sure okay so the first book that um that really got my attention and i am a believer of god and i grew up uh catholic slash christian right well i didn't i wasn't raised catholic but i grew up in a catholic country so um for the most part of my life i was following the christian rules right um, so this book is a little bit outside of that, but it's uh, it's called Laws of Attraction um, by Esther Hicks. And 
it was really just like the second version of like the video called Secret on the movie called The Secret. Uh, when it came out, it's about understanding how your mind works and how you attract stuff and whatever. I don't fully um, agree with the entire uh, mindset of how you attract everything to yourself. I think there's a lot more to it. But what I, my top takeaway was from Laws of Attraction and The Secret is there are certain elements to your mindset that you are responsible for. And, and you have every capability to retrain your mind to start thinking positive and get out of the victimhood. So that was the most favorite part of those books. And that literally kind of set me on this whole new journey where I wanted to know more about how much I'm responsible for, how much is my past really responsible for my childhood and all that, how much generational trauma I'm responsible for and how can I help heal them so that was very interesting and then later on we what changed my mindset about uh money and how much i worked and how much money will i ever be able to make and kind of get out of poverty for real and uh and that helped me to be stop being further exploited financially and emotionally was secrets of a millionaire mind and the writer was t harv ecker yeah T. Harv Ecker. That was absolutely life-changing, that book. Fantastic. All right. So then what about uh, a movie? Are there any movies that you love? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't match with who I am, though. I'm almost embarrassed by it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. There are movies that I absolutely love that has nothing to do with my emotional, spiritual journey. That's fine. Um, okay. Well, I do have a favorite movie that has absolutely nothing to do with my spiritual journey or who I am. And if you knew me, you would be like, huh? How is that movie makes any sense? So it's The Heat with Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, and um, um, Val Kilmer. And a couple of others. I don't know if you ever seen it, but I think that is the most amazing movie that has ever been made in the history of the world. The acting is outstanding. It's about um, a bank robber and a cop and how they kind of chase each other through the whole movie. But it's so intellectual. And there is a shootout scene uh, that's happening in L.A. And it's just so real. The guns are real. Like it's it's a, such an action movie. No woman that I ever heard or met who would like that movie. I think it was totally made for men, but I love it. I think it's my thing. So there you have it. Guns, robbery, cops. I mean, what can possibly go wrong, you know? Now, you know, I've got to go back through my my notes because I had that recommended a little while ago and I could have sworn it was a woman that recommended it too. So I'm going to have, I'll, let, I'll get back to you on that, but I, I think it was a woman that, that recommended it. Are you serious? <laughs> I think so. Wow, then okay, that's awesome. That That is honestly the best movie ever made. And, and I'll tell you why. They give you a real background on the cop and show the world he lives in, right? On the streets, always out chasing, chasing the bad guys, right? And here he is meeting this bad guy who has values and morals. 
And all he's bad about is that he does bank robberies, which is bad and it's illegal. And I get it. Terrible, terrible, whatever. But he never kills no one. And he loves art. And he has a beautiful condo. And he's clean shaved and very intelligent. And so they chase each other. He is the 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 best bank robber, and um, and uh, Al Pacino is the best cop. That is, and the whole movie is about learning about each other. And then there's this big shootout scene, and I'm not going to give it away at the end. But there's one scene where they finally meet, and they end up just sitting down and talking. And I can't even. I can't even repeat the conversation, but A, that's the best a- acting that I have seen, yet to seen. I have never seen better acting or scenes since then, since that movie ever. And um, some came close, but that is literally the best acting. But it's also about how the two sides are actually capable of sitting down and having a conversation and how much they learn from each other and how much they realize that they have the same past and they're living the same life, just on a different side. So in a way, that movie was actually very helpful to me when I started working in human trafficking and I started to see human traffickers as well. Because that movie kind of always reminded me of like there's two sides to every story. And while I want to just lock away all the traffickers, believe me, But I also want to know where did it start? When did it start? Which is why I had that interview with the pimp, if you recall it, right? So, but that movie was a huge, um, it really influenced me on, on to this day, I always want to see the other side of the story. Yeah, I saw it a long, long time ago. So between whoever it was that recommended it recently and yourself, I'm going to have to put it back on the top of my list because I remember it being phenomenal. I think I remember the, the, the gun battle being like one solid sequence through the whole thing as well, if my memory serves me right. But what you said about about reverse engineering, that's a lot of what I try and do with this podcast too, is um perfect example is, is the drug crisis that we're in now. When you reverse engineer how drugs became illegal, when you reverse engineer the mental ill health that causes addiction, that's the root of the problem, not the addict or the, you know, like you said, the trafficker even. Like how did that little cute, giggling toddler does one day become a human being that would actually do that to other people right right exactly i love your thought process well good thank you (laughs) yeah i mean that's that's the goal for me is that we're not going to fix it putting band-aids on on boo-boos you know what i mean we have to get to the actual root of it so this is why the conversation that i'm having with you now is so important because there are going to be men and women hopefully listening to this that either as a responder will, will, will notice something that might alert them to stopping trafficking or, God forbid, even be a warning sign for someone that was about to enter into trafficking. So, um, you know, it's, that's why I love talking to people like you because you guys have the solution, as simple as that. Well, I like to think so, but it's not always the one. But yes, thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Well, then staying on movies, is there a documentary you've seen that you've loved? Okay, so here's the secret. <laughs> I can't sit down for longer than five minutes to watch anything, and I tell you why. From back in the day when I was on Frontline, my phone could ring any minute. And I was on Frontlines for six years and on calls 24-7, and I think I had usually one day off, one. 
So my system is still, after six years not being on front lines, I still check my phone every two minutes and I can't get comfortable. So if I sit down and watch a movie and if the first 10 seconds doesn't get my attention, I'm done. I can't. because In my mind, I can't afford to spend an hour and 20 minutes to find out if I'm going to like this movie or not. Because I may need to go to see a victim, even though I have not seen a victim in, you know, three years or the odd times I go out, we deliver fun and we do uh, cases, but that's a different story. So truth is, it's really, really hard for me to sit down and watch something. Uh, and if it doesn't get my attention in 10 seconds, usually, my husband says I'm a little bit of a harsh critique. <laughs> I should give a few minutes. Usually I give it about a minute and I'm done. So I honestly don't remember when was the last time I watched an entire documentary because nothing really got my attention in less than a few minutes. Yeah, well, I can. I think a lot of people can, can relate to that in the first responder community. I think, you know, it's the hypervigilance for a start. And that's one thing I'm learning now during this, this whole virus thing is to stop looking at my bloody phone because I'm not that important, <laughs> you know. Um, but then the same as well. I don't want to waste 90 minutes of my life. I just watched Backdraft 2 a few months ago and I literally felt like I was robbed of two hours of my life. So, yeah, I, I can actually totally understand what you're saying. <laughs> that's awesome. So I'm not for so long, I didn't understand. For so long, I just thought that I'm just something is really wrong with me. I can't eat properly. I'm so picky and I can't watch TV or movies. And I'm really like very strong opinionated if the acting is bad, right? And then just the other day, we talked about this. And just the other day, my husband and I kind of figured it out. Why I'm like, why is it that I'm like that, right? I'm very impatient. Same with food. If my food is not out in two minutes, I'm out. I'm gone. I don't have time for this because what if I get a call? Not that I would, but, you know, I don't have time to sit and wait for my food. I need my food now and I need to eat in case I have to go. So it's unfortunate. But um, but you know what? Um, yeah, unfortunately, I can't give you any documentaries. No, no, that's fine. It was a great conversation about documentaries. So that's that's the point, really. Um, so the next question um, I love to ask, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I have a million. Um, yes. I have obviously a lot of law enforcement friends who are first responders and work with victims of human trafficking or just first responders uh, not just, you know what I mean? Like first responders. I have a friend who's a probation officer who's doing such an amazing work with his uh, clients, which would be actually, I think it would be very interesting to listen to. I met him 10 years ago and he was, we were working on a case uh, where the girl actually saw other girls being shot in the head. And unfortunately, she disappeared after that. And then two years later, she died and terrible cases. So he he had he is amazing. He's been a probation officer for, I think, 15 or 17 years. And her his ability to help the young people to turn their life around, no matter where they come from, with the little resource he has is just unbelievable. So I think he would be amazing. Um, yeah, I have several suggestions. If if you give me some time, I can think more. But yes, I definitely do. 
Excellent. Yeah, I agree 100%. I haven't had a probation officer on here yet. And I think that would be a very, very interesting perspective. So um, yeah, whoever whoever you would want to connect me with, I would love that. Thank you. All right. So then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress when you're not looking at your phone every two minutes and helping, (laughs) helping victims? Um, I love decorating. So you probably would find me at Ikea or antique stores aside of the road and, um, and trying to help my friends and myself and anybody I know to decorate their interior decoration so that's my that's what i go and calm down and and the kitchen i'm not very good at it so i don't want to promote that part but definitely home decor what's yours um that's a good question well my i don't know if you heard a little bumping that was my german shepherd pushing away into my office and she's lying at my feet now so walking her um we live on a community so i do like a half hour walk with her around the lake um, so yeah, I leave my phone at home, no matter what happens, they can wait for 30 minutes. Um, but yeah, that's, that's one of my big decompressions and then exercise as well. Wow. How long did it take you to leave your phone at home for 30 minutes? Honestly, I, I really think that the mindful practice has helped. I've, I've started jumping back into yoga a lot more since this COVID thing. And my monkey mind has definitely settled down a little bit. So, um, yeah, I think that hypervigilance, whether it's you know the journey you've been on or a lot of the police and fire and, and EMS that's out there, we are constantly waiting for a tone to go off and then we go running into a vehicle and turning lights and sirens on. So um, I think it's that really helped settle everything down where you're just trying to be present. And then the more mindful practice I've done, the less I think about stuff like checking my phone because... You know, I mean, you and I were both of the generation that there weren't cell phones once and you just left a voicemail or even before that, there wasn't a voicemail. You just, <laughs> you either got someone in the house or you didn't. So I think, I think that's it. If it's that important in, in 2020, they'll get hold of you regardless. So it's just trusting that. That's fair. Fair enough. Well, that's, um, that's a great answer. And and um, I do. Are you going back to frontline work once COVID is over? Um, I am not. I actually retired out about a year and a half ago to focus on this because um, like the special forces uh, men and women refer to the, the force multiplier. So just like Nick, Nick could be on the ground as a PJ helping one downed airman at a time. Well, now he's, you know, running Deliver Fund, helping thousands of people. And that's kind of how I see the podcast is. Um, I'm able to bring people like yourself on and thousands of people will listen to that story. Um, so I just feel like that now having been a fireman for 14 years, that's the next level for me is not to promote in a fire service, but get away from the fire service so I can be a voice that can speak freely and hopefully find some solutions to some of the problems in the world. I think it's absolutely incredible what you're doing. And I think every human being who is frontline workers, they can do this for only so long. And then after that, the, the, the tour starts to take and, and you just need to know when you can get out. Now, some people can do it for the rest of their lives, which is absolutely amazing. And if I, ha- if, if my organization didn't run out of funds, I would be still running around with victims in my car, which would be just as well. But 
you know, I guess God had different plans for us. And uh, but I still admire the frontline workers and I would do anything for them. And, you know, if and when I'll be a multimillionaire, I will find a way to give back to any frontline um agencies as well and so yeah what you're doing i think is absolutely amazing and it's a such an honor to be on your show honestly yeah well thank you for coming on like i said nick and i spoke quite a while ago now because i was looking for someone you know on the other side of the the trafficking coin as it were um and yours your name was the first person he talked about so i'm so glad that we were able to do that so i want to make sure that people know where to find you and where to find the book so where's the best place online to reach out to you and find your work so they can just Google me. It's to me and Aggie. And, uh, and then they'll find my website, which is to me and com. Uh, they can also connect me through deliver fund, deliver, deliverfund.org. And the book is on Amazon. Brilliant. All right. Well, to me, I want to say thank you again. Your story is incredible. You are leading from the front, the trauma that you went through to, to overcome that and then turn around and immediately start helping people you know either that are in it or stop even getting in the first place is so admirable and i just really appreciate you taking the time because i understand the toll that takes you know telling the story again so i hope that us spending the time on this is going to make a big difference but i really really appreciate you uh being so generous it's absolutely my pleasure. And just closing, there's one more outlet you can find me if you're a frontline worker. And if you have questions, my door is always open. That's what I've done for 10 years. I still train law enforcement. Please reach out to me. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. And on LinkedIn, it's Timia E. Nagy. And my my married name is Payne, P-A-Y-N-E. So Timia E. Nagy Payne. MSM. That's my that's my credentials. So please reach out. I'm always happy to help any way I can. 